Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We continue our study in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and we do so having uh, traveled through the first three chapters already, where we found that Paul has laid a foundation by revealing that God has chosen and formed a people for himself, the church. But it's in these latter three chapters that we are in that the epistle of, uh, to the Ephesians instructs God's people how to conduct themselves in union with Christ and with each other. As we've been looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we recognize that it itself can be divided into two parts. As we've already been through, uh, <clears throat> or excuse me, the second half of chapter 4 can be divided into two parts as we've already uh, been through verses 17 through 19 and recognized how this instructs us negatively, how believers should not live, that they should not live as the Gentiles do. I mean, we should not walk in the futility of the Gentile mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them. <clears throat> having become callous and having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then we recognize a transition there in verse 20 to now positively how believers should live, how they are uh, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, that they are to put off the old self and put on the new, that they are to be renewed in the spirit of of their minds, that we, as we put on the new self, recognize that it was, is created in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Positively, Paul tells the Ephesians that they would be renewed in the spirit and they would put on the new self, a new life founded in the passive and active obedience of the new Adam in the likeness of whom they were created. Paul now gives practical applications to how this new person in Christ lives day by day. We're going through these five specific exhortations for believers. We've addressed both the exhortation to lay aside falsehood and to be angry and yet do not sin. And here this morning we address that he who stills must still no longer. But these exhortations are rooted in the, in the doctrinal truth of the first three chapters. And as a reality of the new birth comes new life. As I've been saying, Paul Bain has been helpful to me, and he observes that it is a product of being created in the likeness of God in obedience. And it will make us obey all commandments, obey, make us obey in all commandments, it will not divorce the first and second tables, but will join with the works of religion to God, works of mercy to men. For many that make some profession and frequent religious duties may hence be convinced not to be truly religious, because though they are thus holy in this regard or in these regards, yet look at their dealing with men. They have no truth, no truth nor mercy. So many men for moral parts unblameable, one would think them little saints, void of wrath, of uncleanness, of not swears, true in their dealings, yet 
They have nothing in truth because the same men have no acquaintance with faith and repentance, nor no care for holy uh, and religious exercises. The Lord has taught us better this morning. He teaches us better in his word that we would join both duty to God and mercy to men, that we, having faith and repentance, would then turn in obedience to our Lord and seek to walk in the likeness that he has created us in. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25 uh, through the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us petition him for help now. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would guide us and direct us by your spirit, that you would help us to understand your word that we would see Christ, our mediator, who intercedes for us even now, that he is our perfect righteousness. And so we may come to these exhortations without condemnation and be given hope that we may walk in the spirit as you have prepared these works for us. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, This morning, as we approach verse 28 and we see simple exhortations, there's a simplicity uh, to our verse this morning that we are to steal no longer, that we are to work with our own hands, that we are to share with those who are in need. And yet, I'm sure you're as acquainted with your own heart as I am to know that the Entangles, entanglement of sin that comes around such things runs deep. So that we come before our passage this morning, we recognize that uh, we don't always view labor as we should. That maybe we view ourselves wrongfully as not thieves, but as those who stand righteous before God under this precept. This has some complexity to it in such a way, some nuance even. And we may look at this and consider that there is no hope in these words. There is only judgment upon us. But as we agree with the summation of our confession as it relates to the law of God and that it sweetly comports with the gospel, we will see this morning that we have much hope 
in, our, in this verse as we do any other verse in Scripture. And so we see this morning that within our verse, we have the Spirit's exposition of the moral law of God, specifically the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. This morning, we will look at our verse under three headings, under the heading of negative precept, of also positive prescription, and then purposeful application. In the first part of our verse, we find that negative precept. He who steals must steal no longer. Gill defines stealing or theft as a fraudulent taking away of another man's goods without the knowledge and will of the owner for the sake of gain, to which evil may be reduced, not making good or not performing payments, all unjust contracts, detention of wages, unlawful usury, that is, um, uh, exorbitant uh, interest on loans that we would apply if we loaned money and, and, and did absor- uh, exorbitant interest on it, unfaithfulness in anything committed to trust, advising, encouraging, and receiving from thieves. In conclusion, theft is a very great evil. We may understand theft in, in the simplest form, as I did as a, as a young child walking through a grocery store one day with my parents, or actually I wasn't with my parents at that point. The pattern uh, as I was growing up is I'd go to the grocery store with my mom and she would go and do her circuit through the grocery store. I'd go straight to the toy and uh, magazine aisle where I could go and look at all those uh, dime store toys that for some reason enticed such a young man as me. And uh, I remember one time uh, walking down the aisle and, and taking notice of, of the bags of uh, marbles that were hanging there for sale and noticing that one had uh, evidently broken open and there was marbles laying in the kind of display tray at the bottom. Uh, I made the judgment that those were mine and I took them and put them in my pocket and I remember as we were walking out the store, as we were getting in the car, I, I took them out to look at them or I showed them to my brother. I can't remember exactly the occasion, but my mom caught wind that I was holding on to these marbles. And uh, like a good parent, she took me back into the store where I had to hand the marbles back over to the manager of the store, uh, confess my wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness. Uh, needless to say, I took no more marbles as a young man. Uh, But uh, to my own chagrin, my thieving uh, didn't stop there. As I come to know the the word of God, I I recognize that though I may not have stolen any more material goods from any uh, grocery stores or any any person, uh, I daily steal from the Lord in worship. I daily uh, steal from the Lord in thought. I oftentimes find myself in laziness and um, sluggardness at work, and I steal from my employer. I find myself stealing from my wife, love that's due to her, stealing from my children, proper correction and loving guidance. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you a thief 
um, condemned before the law of God if it should fall upon me. We see that thief or, thief or stealing can find itself in a very simple form, but as we understand it in light of the character of a holy and righteous God, we find that stealing falls in every avenue of our life. And so we may find ourselves, though uh, free from the stealing of material goods, condemned as it relates to the immaterial or to things uh, due to God in worship or due to our fellow neighbor in, uh, in love and kindness. As I've been saying and as James Boyce observes, that stealing does not just involve material goods. He says we steal from God when we fail to worship him as we ought or when we set our own interests before his legitimate interests. We steal from him when we fail to honor him by our lives or fail to tell others of his love. We steal from an employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable or when we waste time or consistently leave work early. If we are in business, we can steal by overcharging for what we make or for the service we render. We steal if we sell an inferior product pretending it is better than it is. We steal by borrowing and not repaying. We steal by damaging another's reputation. We steal from ourselves when we waste the time, talents, or resources God has entrusted to us. Brothers and sisters, there may be something simple about he who steals must steal no longer. But there is something compounded as we recognize it in light of the moral character of our God. That there is something real for us to understand about stealing no longer as Christians. That there are things that we do on a daily basis that amount to stealing. Lest we find ourselves as the Pharisees did and look upon others and thank the Lord that we are not thieves like them. We must look at the word of God and see the character of our holy and righteous Lord and see that we too are thieves. And that we are to put this away, that it is, it is not of our new selves. It is not of the likeness of God. It is not of being created in righteousness and holiness and truth. It is of the old man. It is of the old man that is futile in, in its mind, darkened in its understanding. We are to turn from our thieving ways. We are to repent and walk in righteousness. How, what is the repenting? When, when we turn from the evil and turn to the good, what is the good that we are to turn to? Is it just no longer stealing? Is it just no longer taking something that's not ours or misusing something that's been given to us? Paul helps us with this by exhorting us with a positive precept. We turn from the negative, or excuse me, we turn from the negative precept to the positive prescription. This understanding that we are to steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Question this morning is how do we view work? I learned uh, many things from my father growing up. 
many things I'm thankful for, but I think one of the things that I may be most thankful for is the understanding of an honest day's work. If there's one thing that I could say about my father is that he understood this. He worked hard all his life, and he gave himself to his work. And I learned as a, as a young child that there was something valuable in that. There was something worthy of a day's labor. And so as I grew, I, I, sought, I, I, I tried to never turn from hard labor or hard day's work or a hard task or a difficult project, but pursued it as um, I understood it in imitation of my father. And so I ask you this morning, though I, I don't stand above you in any of these ways, for oftentimes I view work in this way, but I ask you this morning, do you see work as a curse? Certainly, as we work, we experience the curse that we gain from the ground as figuratively through toil and sweat. But do you see work in itself as a curse? Do we see it as getting in the way of other more pleasurable pursuits? Do we who are taught to pray that the Lord, pray that uh, the Lord would give us this day our daily bread, despise the means of this provision? Do we understand that a day's work and wages are a blessing from the Lord? The Lord's exposition of his law is that if we are not to steal, then we are to work, for this is in imitation of our Creator. We see this also as in light of being created in the image of God. We see this in the first Adam. For prior to the fall, Adam was given work. He was to keep the garden and presumably to see to its growth and flourishing. Work was not a curse to Adam in the garden before the fall. Work was a blessing. It continued to be a blessing after the fall. It just led, it just uh, regarded are revealed the curse of sin. We certainly see this supremely in the second Adam, where when he was persecuted by the Jewish leaders for healing on the Sabbath, answered them by saying, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. We serve a savior who came to work who came to do the Father's work. He, he said it over and over again, I do not do of my own accord, but I do what the Father has sent me to do. Work, brothers and sisters, is a blessing. We are to see work as a good. This is oftentimes contrary to the world's understanding of work. Work is something to be avoided and to get out of. Work is to be, to be done for a time and then to be laid aside as we enter into retirement and recreation. I'm not uh, saying that there is an evil to retirement, but what I'm saying is work doesn't end when your primary vocation is over. We are to continue on and labor in the things that the Lord has then allowed us to do outside of that vocation. But certainly as those of us who continue in our daily vocation, 
We are to do so with an understanding that is a good and a blessing from the Lord. For as I said before, we are to pray as Christ has taught us to pray that the Lord would give us our daily bread. Certainly that relates to the scripture and the spiritual nourishment we receive from Christ in the spirit as we read his word daily. But it also applies to the daily bread of provision that comes by the means of work. It's why uh, others are, are, are theologians like Al, Al Mohler, who I agree with, view the understanding of gambling as a usurping of work, as an actual sin against our design to gain from honest labor. For in the gambling task, we are to put out something and gain for nothing. We are to gain by quote-unquote chance. We are to gain without work. And so the motivation behind it is greed. So we are to see our work as as a way to avoid such unlawful gain. We are to enter into our work as a blessing from God so that we see in it his provision for our needs. And as this comes to us, we may see this directly or more explicitly applied uh, to the husbands in the room who go to work, who quote-unquote go to work. And we may not think and stop to think of it for our wives. Ladies, you work. It may be argued that you work harder than your husbands because your husbands come home from work. You never leave your work site. You're never off the clock. You continue to labor day after day. I think of And this is very clear in Scripture, I think, as we think of Paul's exhortation to young widows. He encourages young widows to remarry. Why does he encourage young widows to remarry? Because to avoid them being gossips and busybodies, to enter into idleness and so then be tempted to do such things as being gossips and busybodies. What's the implication there? Is that they would enter into marriage again and so enter into honest work, the work of the home, the labor of keeping a home and raising children. It is a good that the Lord has gifted you with, though it often reveals the curse as you do so in toil and sweat. You do so often to the confrontation of the sin of your children. But it is a good of the Lord as you work in the home. You imitate your creator. You imitate your savior. And so you are a blessing to the family as you work. We are to see work as good. A good that here contextually keeps us from the temptation of theft, a good that in God's providence is to provide for our daily needs, a good that is given to us to imitate our Lord, a good 
to us that gives us opportunity to participate in the Lord's provision for those in need. Though here Paul uses labor as the positive prescription, the Spirit of God does not allow us to be content with just aimless good deeds. If we were to stop at stealing no longer and working with our own hands, we might have a form of moralism. Moralism says, do what is right. It need not matter your motivation. It need not matter the condition of your heart or the aim of your work. Moralism is only cared, cares about the deed, but we see here in Scripture that it goes beyond the negative precept, beyond the positive prescription, but towards a purposeful application that we are to perform our labor, performing with our own hands what is good so that he will have something or so that we will have something to share with one who has need. Here we see the ultimate purpose of our work is love. Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, reads, Owe nothing to anyone except love except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Here we have this in applicable terms or practical terms in Ephesians 4.28, that to love our neighbor as ourself is to not steal from them, is to do good by working with our own hands so that then we may share with the one who is in need. How awesome and wise is the word of God as we recognize it protects us from a harsh dealing with our neighbor a harsh dealing with our neighbor who we may, with the um, colloquial saying of our forefathers in this nation, that God helps those who help themselves. I think that's a misapplication of a passage like this this morning or a verse like this this morning. Those that labor with their own hands are able to help those in need. What love is, 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 ma or is covered in this saying. That we labor not for our own good, but for the good of others. We labor not for self-indulgent things, but so that we may share with the one who is in need. There's that exhortation to the one who is tempted to be a sluggard and lazy, to get up. And work with your hands. And yet, there is love here for those, for us that are working, to see the one who is in need and to share with what the Lord has provided. For we recognize in all this, and this purposeful application is that the idea here is that we are actually not owners of what we labor for, but stewards of it. We are stewards 
of somebody else's goods. For what we have has been given to us as a blessing. Because it is, again, a blessing to work and gain wages. It is a blessing of the providence of God to do so that, so that we may share with those who are in need. We are to share the labor of our hands. Honest gain is not for self-indulgence, but for doing something beneficial for others within the believing community. A believer is to work diligently to gain what is good for the purpose of sharing with those who have need. The understanding here is to be habitually motivated by self-indulgence is contrary to the heart and mind of Christ. 1 John 3.16 reminds you what we have been taught by Pastor Dana And here in the word of God, it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little little children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but in deed and truth. What a connection between the work of our Savior, the labor of our hands, and the sharing of our goods with our brothers and sisters. We know, though, as we know our hearts, that on these matters we're often conflicted. We're often conflicted and afflicted with many weaknesses. For work is a toil. Work is difficult day in and day out, to wake up in the morning, whether you have vocation or you're retired from your primary vocation, but to get up with the will to work. For we are fraught with many weaknesses. And then we manage by the strength of Christ to get up in the morning, to get dressed, and to go to work. And then we're immediately met with the weaknesses of our minds and our hearts and our wills. For we go into work with deceitful desires. We go into work to seek the goods of this world so that we may have more of them, so that we may hoard them, so that we may be indulged by them. But we may be of good cheer this morning as we recognize that even in those days when we find ourselves motivated to work for the Lord, to get up in the blessing of a day's work, to engage with the effects of the fall as we enter into work. We recognize and we agree with chapter 16 of our confession of good works, paragraph 6. Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Brothers and sisters, do not let your weaknesses and imperfections prevent you 
from working as unto the Lord, from laboring and performing with your hands what is good. Do not let your many weaknesses that are entangle every good work, and especially as it relates to this doctrine of work, bring you down into despair. For Christ looks upon your work, though intertwined with improper desire, God looks upon them through the Son and is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. It's helpful in these moments to have, I think, the tradition of the Orthodox Church through the ages, one of the ones out of the Reformation that I enjoy the most, I think, is question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is uh, your only hope in this life? That I am not my own. That I am wholly purchased. And it goes on. I didn't write it down and I haven't memorized it completely to my own shame. But that I am not my own. We wake up daily, not under our own strength, not because we attended to our own sustenance and our own keeping, our own existence through the, through the night, but we wake up because the Lord has ordained us to wake another day. And so as he's given us another day, we are to labor and perform with our own hands what is good. Thomas Watson says that though we serve with weaknesses, it may be with willingness. Unless we come to this exhortation with a spirit of legalism, let us remember that we stop stealing and commit ourselves to work based on the imputed righteous work of our Savior. For certainly he worked for us, offering up to God an acceptable life of work, working for its righteous end and giving to others for the life he lived. He lived for us that he might give us his life and we might receive his righteousness. Let us put away a spirit of legalism that then says we are to work and so gain a standing with God. For what can you gain that you haven't already received from Christ? His work is our work. His work is to motivate us in our own labors. His giving is to motivate us in our own giving. Philippians 2 reminds us that this mind is imparted to us through union with him. The extended passage in Philippians 2 reads, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We recognize that as we read of this emptying, we recognize that it's in contextual connection to the incarnation, the chosen flesh that God assumed. The chosen flesh that God assumed was not one glorious flesh, was not one of noble birth, was not one set in the palaces of kings to receive honor and praise and worship continually. But it was flesh that in the form of a servant. It was flesh humbled and further humbled, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let us rejoice in Christ Jesus this morning. Let us rejoice in Christ Jesus our Lord to the, the glory of God the Father that He came and worked on our behalf so that we may labor, so that we may work with joy. Paul goes on in verse 12 of Philippians 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us work for the good pleasure of our Lord. Let us work as we work only for a singular employer. May this work in us contentedness with what we have so that we may be ready to give and share with those in need. I'll conclude with these remarks of Daniel Doriani. He says, in so sharing, we have the privilege of becoming Christ to our neighbor. Our working in order to share with others is not simply a means of keeping God happy with us. In fact, the works of our hands are never sufficient to, marry, to merit God's acceptance. Yet such sharing has a far greater purpose, and that is more powerful motivation than self-protection or self-promotion. Generosity of spirit, concern for mercy, and the willingness to live sacrificially are actually presentations of the grace of Christ as though Christ himself were speaking through us. Maybe I won't conclude with Daniel Doriani because I feel like as us, as those who go and labor in vocation, we give of our energy, we give of our health and vitality as we labor as unto the Lord. And as I think of you, sisters, who labor as mothers, you give of your health, you give of your energy, you give oftentimes of the fleeting beauty that you possess, you give
you give of the, to the needs of your family, of us as your husbands and certainly as your children. Let us be grateful to the Lord that he empowers us and works in us by his spirit to do so daily. And may we perform with our own hands what is good so that we will have something to share with the one who is in need. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the labor of our Savior, who in so laboring perfectly, with perfect righteousness and motivation of heart, has achieved for us that which we could never merit and achieve. We thank you that we have a Savior who humbled himself with no place to lay his head, wearied in his vocation as prophet, priest, and king, wearied in his human nature, sleep often eluding him. We thank you that we have such a Savior who knows our weaknesses. So as we now labor, as we now seek to understand the good that you have given us in work, that we may with the Spirit of Christ do so for the good of our neighbor, for the love of God and the love of man. We ask, Lord, that we would rely on you daily for these things. And with thanksgiving in our heart, receive from you the blessings of Christ. And so labor according to your good pleasure. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.